Hey, everybody. Welcome to BU Only Better or BYOB Audio. This podcast was started to help listeners like you find a way to be your best self, but not change who you are. We want you to be your best you while on a journey to a happier and more fulfilling life. Tune in to hear personal stories of how people face their fears and overcome their struggles to become a better version of themselves. Thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of BYOB Audio. Last week, I got to interview Melinda Van Fleet, a national keynote speaker dedicated to helping others in sales, leadership, and personal development. Although Melinda is now a speaker, podcaster, and owner of her own coaching and consulting business, she wasn't always. Tune in to hear how she overcame three major hardships simultaneously. Today, I have an amazingly special guest, someone who has just tons of experience and expertise that he's just dying to share. It is Dr. Jorge Valdez, who was the number one cocaine drug trafficker in America in the 1970s and early 1980s. And he was the head of U.S. operations of the drug cartel that came to be known as the Medellin Drug Cartel, partnered with Pablo Escobar and other infamous drug lords. I'll let him kind of fill in the blanks of his story, but since then, he's become a nationally known speaker, podcaster, author, and just so many other things that we have to hear from him. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Dr. Valdez. Dr. Valdez, welcome to the show. Go ahead and fill us in. There's a lot to take in here. So uh, go ahead and uh, let us know a little bit more about your story. Hey, Josh, nice to be with you. It's a pleasure to be on your show. And I commend you because, you know, we... Sometimes we look at life and we say, you know, what difference can I make in the world? I'm just a little guy, right? And say, I'm just a little guy that owns a spy and thinks it. What difference? The truth of the matter is that every single one of us can do a lot. Every single one of us can make an enormous difference in this world. It just depends on how do we look at the world and, and through what lenses we look at the world. And then we decide to do something. So you're doing something, you're changing, you don't know which listener is at a point in his life that desperately needs to hear that message that day, God knows, and uh, and you'll impact the life. You know, I say that uh, God does extraordinary things to very ordinary people, and and that's how I look at my life. I mean, we look at Mother Teresa, man, you know, nobody, none, in a nobody part of the world, literally changed the world, right? So, you know, I'm excited to to share my story with your listeners. My story is, I uh, want to say that it's unique only uh, in, in a very humble way, not in, a, in any way, because one thing I would do want to tell the listeners before, and I do this all the time, is, you know, I'm very, very ashamed of the life I live. I'm very repentful. Uh, there's nothing that I can do to change what I did and what I was involved in that became what it became. And what I do in life now is not to make up for any of that at all. What I do in life is because I feel that I can change the world. And my mission is if I change one kid's life from not becoming George Valdez, I have changed the world. That is awesome, George. And thank you for sharing already. We definitely want to get more into your story. But as all of our listeners know, we always start the show off with a unique shot of wisdom. What did you have in mind in terms of sharing with our audience? The, the biggest wisdom, one of the things is, as we look at the world, it really is insignificant what we see outside of, unless we can identify through what lenses we're looking at. You know, And I usually use an example of uh, a cowboy, a preacher, and an artist you know, uh, looking down on the Grand Canyon and uh, artist says, well, if I could transfer this to my canvas, I will be famous. 
the uh, preacher said, wow, how much beauty God created. The cowboy looks at it and says, oh, my God, it'd be hell to get my cows from down there. <laughs> They're all looking identically the same thing, right? Right. But coming up with a different perspective. And it's, it's specifically if we want to talk about this virus, you know, I look at it compared to how a lot of people look at it, you know. To me, it's like I can't understand the panic. I mean, it's not to say I have a lot of perspectives, number one, because it's involved in a world where we bought, you know, politicians left and right. right. We're spending a million dollars in the 70s. So I know the special interest. I know power that they have over the people. And uh, and therefore, just this uh, is very horrific. I look at the world very different. Number one, I'm a Christian. Right. Even though I, I tell people, I'm not a Christian writer. I'm a writer and a speaker that happens to be a Christian. But very different. So, which means my mission is not to evangelize or to change people's heart. My mission is to tell a story, you know? Yeah. And it's my story. I said it's something that is, that is very, very clear, you know? Yes, sir. All right, no, that is awesome. And I think that comes through through your podcast and, uh, you know, even right now. So, I mean, it's just awesome you have a you know, consistent message. And that's kind of what I was looking for. So I do have questions lined up for you, but your story is so unique and so inspiring and powerful. I know our audience would definitely like to hear more about your story before we actually get into the questions that I typically ask. So go ahead and tell us more. One of the messages important for your listeners to know two things. We think that bad things only happen to bad kids. And then very, very important for many people today is we feel that we do something wrong and that's it. The end of the world. Nothing, you know, nothing can erase that. It's all over. We fall down. We fail. And uh, and both of them are alive. Number one, I was a perfect example of a good kid. Yeah, I was I was a good kid that, uh, you know, never did anything wrong. My mother was very, very religious. My mother wanted us to leave Cuba so that we could come and worship God free. You know, very, very committed Catholic. My father was a typical Catholic of the 50s, 60s, him even venture to say so many today, you got a church and, you know, good man, tremendous principle, but not very, very involved and not really committed to the church as I want to buy am. So we came from Cuba, but the problem was in 1966 that at the airport, my mother gets left behind. See, and my mother was the center of our home. My father was, you know, he was literally a, a gentleman that, you know, he didn't have a... Didn't care to leave. He was very wealthy. He was 40 years old. And he was sort of like, look, why am I going to leave for? If I leave Cuba, uh, I'm going to go to a country where I don't speak the language. He never thought that anything bad was going to happen with Fidel Castro. So lo and behold, he decided that he's going to stay. Well, my mother pushed and pushed. He decided, so then that's when he decides, okay, I'll go with it. But at the airport, they said that my mother can't come. And that to him was like, <clears throat> the good night. If she's not going, I'm not going either. Well, lo and behold, uh, she come over to me. I was 10. My brother was nine. My sister was six. And she says, she says, son, I want you to take your brother and sister to Miami. I'll see you one day. First, I didn't even know where we were going. We were abruptly woken up that morning and said, you know, we're leaving the country. And then all of a sudden, at the airport, as I am literally hypnotized, walking towards the uh, airplane, my father decides to to come along, and that was an enormous blessing. But what ends up happening, we go to a one-bedroom apartment in Miami, Little Havana, with, uh, we were four of us, I mean, three of us, and eight other relatives, and we're sleeping in a one-bedroom apartment and uh, with one bathroom, so we all had to write down what time we're going to use the bathroom because 
you know, everybody had to go to school and work. So long of the story, I eventually my mother came six years later. Give you an example about the type of man my father was. Very, very proud man. Prior to us leaving Cuba, I don't think I ever spoke to my father in 10 sentences. You know, it was the old mentality. Children are meant to be seen, not to be heard, you know? So it was a blessing coming and him losing. He's among the 10 richest men in Cuba. It was a blessing him losing everything because we became a family. We had a glass of milk and two raw eggs every morning. That's all we had to eat till the nighttime. And, you know, we got hungry. We went to school hungry. We see kids having lunch. And one day, I found out a friend of mine who had been here like, like three months before us, come to Miami three months before us. Uh, he always has a sandwich. And I'm like, I'll go to him and I said, like, hey, where do you all get the money to, to buy a sandwich? He says, oh, man, we get food stamps. I'm like, wow, really? What is that? He said, you know, the government gives you the stamps and you go to the grocery store, you buy food. I said, wow, that's great. My father must not know about this. So I go to my father when he got home from work and uh, say, that. You know that a friend of mine, he takes lunch because he's able to buy it because he has food stamps. And do you know about that? And my dad just nodded his head. I said, well, dad, why don't we get food stamps? He's like, son, food stamp is for poor people. And I'm like, holy crap, man. We're not even poor yet. <laughs> We're not so underneath poor. Now, we got to work our way up to poor poverty. He says, for poor people. And I'm going to tell you this, son. Some people need help, but people that take help from the government stay poor all their lives. And he put his finger on my chest. I was 10 years old, 70 pounds soaking wet. He said, you figure out how to get up early and find a way where you can contribute so your family can eat. And that was the beginning of my life since the age of 10. I delivered newspaper, I washed cars. I did whatever it took not to buy any luxury because the amazing thing is the first luxury we ever had in the United States was not a TV, a car, or a radio record player. It was a Monopoly board. <laughs> and that's all we had, so we could play Monopoly. So my father said that and turned around and walked away. And that was my life. But my life was really driven because three days uh, being in Miami, <clears throat> all of a sudden, my cousin, who had been here for about a year and a half, drives up in this beautiful beautiful candy apple red GTO with a white interior. And I looked at that, Josh, and I'm like, you know what? That is it. When I buy that car, when I buy a car like that, whenever I have a beautiful home, I'm going to become somebody. Because right now, I am a nobody. And I'm not going to stay nobody. Because, see, I met the American dream. The American dream that many of your listeners and many of us today believe it is. We, we buy uh, two, three houses. We go out with more than one gorgeous woman. We have fancy cars. We have a lot of money, and we've made it. Well, the truth of the matter, that's not the American dream that built this amazing nation, which was the World War II generation, that said, we work hard. We educate our children. We have one house. We barely take vacations. We sell our house when we retire, or we have live off our Social Security and low pension. It wasn't that. These people didn't have marriage problem. They had a lot of marriage problems. But see, divorce was not an option. They didn't like the war, but to serve was an honor. They'd rather be an hour early than a minute late. And that's the principles, and that is the true American dream to build this nation. But we have been lied to. We have been sold this good, uh, and all you do is just turn on television or billboards, and, and you just got to have all this, right? So anyway, I did too. 
And I worked very hard at the age of 17. I was the youngest employee in the Federal Reserve Bank. And, uh, and at the same time, I was going to University of Miami full-time. And I was laser. At the age of 20, I'm going to graduate from college. By 24, I graduate from law school. By 30, I'm going to be rich and become somebody. And that was my mission. I didn't have a social life. I didn't do anything. All I ever did is go to work full-time, go to school full-time. Long story, at the age of 20, when I'm graduating, my accounting professor comes and says to me, hey, George, why don't you come to work for me? Yeah, I moved from Michigan, did not speak Spanish. And he said, if you do my Spanish clients, I'll give you a secretary, office, you know, everything you want to have to one day have your own business. And I told like, wow, first time anyone ever gave me anything. Because by this time, I was pretty adamant an atheist, right? I didn't believe in God. My mother was crazy. I couldn't be God. If we come into the United States to be with God, and we're going hungry and sleeping on the floor when we were rich before, you know, Fidel was right. You know, and that's all I thought about. What we have been taught is cool. Fidel is right. You know, uh, God is for weak people that need a reason to exist. And I and I wanted to live my life in that way. So I continued working now, and I said to him, sure, I'm going to work for him. Well, the first client that he gave me was a little grocery store. Couldn't have been wider than 25, 30 feet by about probably 15 feet wide by about 30, 40 feet long. Just a little bit neighborhood grocery store. And I went there the first day, and when I went there, all of a sudden, I see this bag with $100,000. And I'm like, wow, man, how can these people make so much money? Now, I was, mind you now, I was the optimal nerd. If you look at, at a picture of a nerd in a dictionary, it would have been mine. <laughs> I have braces, never drunk in my life, never did alcohol, never smoked, never did drugs. All I did was work and study, work and study, very focused. I'm like, I can't believe this. So next week I come, but I'm very naive. I have no idea what the heck is going on. And next week I come and I'm like, okay, see what happens. Next week I come and I find seven hours. And now I start to worry. I mean, not worry, but become inquisitive. Like how does people make all this money? And I'm looking at what they purchased and it was like $300, $400 a week. They're not even buying that much. And the stuff they're buying, I look at the shelves, they're still sitting there. When the third week I go, there's $125,000, i am like, no, I got to call the man. So I called the owner and I'm like, Albert, let me, let me give you a little uh, accounting lesson. In accounting, you buy that Campbell dusty soup you have in the shelf there for a dollar. And if you sell it for $3, you make $2 profit. So that means that in the last three, I counted over $300,000. That meant that you must have sold anywhere between, according to your margin, seventy-five dollars to $100,000. But all I've added up is $1,100. It doesn't add up. And he just looked at me and laughed. He's like, George, we're drug dealers. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Here's this kid that had never done drugs in his life. If I went to a party and I saw someone smoking reefer, I'd walk out and tell my girlfriend, hey, I'm a government employee. I have security clearance. I can't be doing this stuff. I tell you, I was shocked. I was shocked for about 10 seconds because that's all it took for me to justify what I was doing. And at that time, the justification was, listen, I need this $1,000 a month that they're paying me. And, that, and that's how it is in life for all of us, right? It's so hard to do something the first time. I tell people, the first time I cheated my first wife, I could sleep that night. Second time, I could sleep for a couple hours. Third time, didn't even give it a second thought. And that's how, and well, as a Christian, I call it sin, you know? I said, nobody starts drinking a gallon of vodka, right? You're going to die. No one shoots an ounce of heroin. You're going to die. We start. 
a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. And then we start justifying by saying, I'm not hurting anybody. Well, that's the biggest BS in the world. You start out by hurting yourself and you hurt everybody around you. There's no such thing as an act that has only individual consequences. So I'm like, okay, as long as I don't break the law, I'm an accountant, let them do whatever they want. And it's very important to realize that in the back then in the uh, 70s, or this is 1976, in 76, cocaine was a status drug. It wasn't even in the DEA radar. I was only worried about marijuana and heroin. And then why? Because who did cocaine? The movie stars, the rich, the celebrity. So I I started doing the books for him, and he's like, do you know how to open foreign bank accounts? You work for the government. I said, I do. And he said, well, what does it take? Well, I knew that it cost about $700. And I said, uh, well, it's $10,000 plus expenses. Because I really didn't want to get involved in nothing but doing that little kind. To me, that $1,000 a month was gold. Because it was only one day a month. And whereas before... I had a high salary working for the federal government, and it was three fifty an hour. <laughs> Minimum wage was, you know, eighty five cents. So I was making one hundred forty dollars a week. I was like king of the hill. <laughs> so now a thousand for one client a month. I'm like, you know, I, I made it. This is it, man. So they're like, okay, can you open up three of them? And I was shocked. I'm like, but I did, and I started opening up, and I kept justify. Hey, I'm only handling the money. There's no money laundering laws. Not a problem. And I went through like that for two, three months. Then the other one day says, I want you to meet my partners. And he meets a gentleman called Manuel Garces, who was the head of the largest drug organization in the world at that time. See, because for you listeners to know, maybe they never heard this, there was no such thing as the Medellin Drug Cartel. The Medellin Drug Cartel was a name made up by the Americans in the 80s to group four or five different groups together into one because if you have one common enemy, you can win the battle. In 19, but that group, those major uh, traffickers, like, you know, Pablo Escobar, the Ochoa, the Gaza, they didn't even surface till the 80s, beginning of 81. Manuel Garcés was making, doing $100 million a month in 1977. Oh, you know, so I opened the bank account. Then they come and they offer me if I wanted to uh, be partners with them and run and be the president of a shipping company so that we can go and, and pick up bananas. And I did the whole study. And so we buy the ship, and I'm in California. Now, suddenly, quickly, as they started getting comfortable with me, they start saying, you know, George, you can really make a lot of money if you handle operations for us in the United States. Now, I had no idea what the hell that meant. What operation? And I'm like, dude, I already crossed the line opening the foreign bank account. That's the end of it. And they're like, no, no, and they get that and they had it. Every time we met, you know, they bring it up. You know, it's almost like a Chinese torch, a little drop of water, and you had one after the other. Mm-hmm. So in California, I hired this guy to do the refrigeration for the uh, ship. And uh, he was young, my age. I was, at that time, I was 21. And he was probably about 25, but he had a softball team, and I used to play baseball. I almost played professional baseball when I was young. And uh, we became close friends. I was in Stockton, California. And I hang out with him a lot after work and on the weekends. And he started to, once we got pretty friendly, he's like, oh, man, I know that ship is for cocaine. And I'm like, man, what the heck? You know, I'm like, dude, you're out of your mind. Number one, when I put my name on, on something that's going to smuggle cocaine, are you crazy? I, I got more sense than that. And he kept that in, kept that in. So one day I thought I had this genius idea. You know, I'm going to find out how much cocaine costs. 
and then I'm going to give this guy a ridiculous price so that he can leave me alone. And when I thought of that, I said, well, why don't I do the same thing with the Colombian? Why don't I go to them and say, look, you want me to hand up raising? I will. But I'm equal partners, and you put up my part. Now, there were four of them. That would make us five, which meant that at that time, to bring in a load of cocaine, 200 kilos was costing $4 million. So between four people, you're talking about, you know, a million dollars a piece. And I knew that, you know, they're going to look at this kid. Yeah, I mean, you should see me. Well, I think in my book, Coming Clean, there's a picture of me when I was young. I have braces, long hair. I look literally like a nobody. Hmm. So I went back to my hotel, and I'm like, you know, I'm a genius. I figured this out. They finally were leaving me alone. And the next day, I was headed to California. And when the driver came to pick me up, he said, uh, Don Manuel wants to see you at his office. So I said, okay, maybe we forgot something. And I walked in there, and there was him and three other guys I never met. And very stoic look, you know, like, not smiling, very, like, serious. And I told him in the beginning, man, I'm in trouble. Why the hell did I open up my mouth and tell these people that now they got insulted, they're going to shoot me? So, and I'm like, yeah, man, you want anything that we that I can help you with? How did we forget to go over something? He's like, no, I've really been talking to my partner saying, we agree. We're going to make you head of all operation partner. <laughs> and I'm like, well, are you sure? No, I have no experience. So don't worry, you'll learn quick. You're very intelligent, and uh, we need someone that has a great reputation like you. You don't even have a traffic ticket. So I'm like, okay. But I literally had peed in my pants. And I was as I was going to the airplane, I just wanted to cry. I was like, what the hell have I done, man? Oh, my God, I'm dead now. What is going on? How the hell do you bring it in? Who do you sell it to? Well, maybe those clowns in California want some. Who do I sell it to? How do I collect the money? How do I transport it? I mean, well, how do I smuggle it? My world literally just collapsed. Get to California, and Mel says to me, you know, my partner said, it's okay, we'll take 10 kilos. And I'm like, holy cow. You can read the rest of it in my book, Coming Clean or Narco Mindset. But what ends up being is within six months, I was U.S. head of all operations for that group. That became the Medellin Drug Cartel. And at the age of 21, I was making a million to $2 million a month. And I thought now that I had reached the pinnacle, now I had made it. Why? Because I had million dollars worth of cars. I had mansions in every city that I went to. Because I used to say, hey, I don't want to carry a suitcase. I had private jets. But something weird was going on. I was miserable. And I couldn't understand why I was miserable because everybody, all my friends looked at me and they're like, we want to be you. You know, we want to be like you. So how is it that you are so miserable? And, uh, well, I would tell them, like, say, those are close to me. And I just could not understand it because years later, writing, writing my first book, Coming Clean, I, uh, I realized that it was because my whole life was geared around reaching this pinnacle, you know. And when I reached it, thinking that there it was, joy, happiness, meaning there's nothing there. People meant nothing. Money meant nothing. So when you think about a million dollars in 1977, when you can buy a Corvette for $15,000, when you can buy a beautiful four-bedroom house in Miami for $20,000, and it was like that. Then two years later, we went on, and we're doing $100 million a month. And, and they said that during our period of time, the Federal Reserve Bank had more money in their deposit in Miami than all the Federal Reserve Banks in the United States. So all of a sudden, I get approached by one of my workers that the... Um, the captain of the Bolivian Air Force 
the Bolivian government wanted to do business with me. Now, I don't know if you ever saw the movie uh, Scarface, but at the end of the movie Scarface, the guy that came from Bolivia to kill Tony Montana, Roberto Suarez, that was my partner. So I'm like, all right, what do you want? I fly to Bolivia, and they're like, look, for every kilo you buy, we'll give you one on credit, and we'll charge you half of what you're paying now. We're paying 20,000 Colombia, because Colombia did not produce cocaine. He said, we'll sell it to you for 10,000 a piece. We just want you to do two or three loads every month. So I went back to my godfather. He almost had a heart attack because he was like, are you out of your mind? Don't you realize, George, we make, you're making so much money. Why do you want to deal with those animals? He said, you're putting your life in danger. You handle everything. Because if something happens to you, we're done. I'm like, Manuel, don't worry. Nothing can happen to me. See, looking back, I realized I got the God companies, just like athletes, celebrities, because we praise them, right? Because we, we, we love that lavish lifestyle without knowing that they're all hurting, man. They're all miserable. They all got the same challenges you and I have. And uh, But I went ahead and did it anyways. Long of the story, uh, again, we went to Bolivia, picked up the drugs. I had to get back to Nicaragua, and uh, I had a transaction with uh, General Somoza, the president of Nicaragua at that time. And I couldn't get there in time, so I just got on the airplane to Colombia. And I said, well, I'll go to Colombia from Colombia. I'll have the airplane take it to Nicaragua because that's where we're going to refuel. And then I'll take a jet to, uh, to Europe, which I was going to pick up a brand new Mercedes I bought in Germany. And uh, we got to Colombia. Everything was fine. But on our way to Nicaragua, our airplane crashed. And uh, at 3,000 feet, we went down. The, my partner, who was uh, in charge of all the pilots at the time, a guy named Harold, he says to me, take the, take the flare gun and blow this son of a bitch up. <laughs> and I'm like, there's $7 million in there. Are you out of your mind? He said, listen, we'll make it up again. But I'm like, I'm never going to lose it. I said, first of all, I know I can buy my way out of anything in Latin America. I said, we'll just figure out, get this stuff out of the airplane, and we'll take it to Costa Rica. And we had just paid a million dollars to get the president of Costa Rica elected. And uh, he said, all right. So I gave the passports, a lieutenant came. Yeah, the airplane, you saw the pictures in my book, the airplane dug itself up and we jumped off the airplane. So it was really, unless they brought a ladder, there was no way they could go out there and search the airplane. And I gave the guy a couple hundred bucks and he was happier than anything you can ever imagine. And uh, I said, can you stamp our passport so that we can, so that we came into the country legally? I said, I was looking at some farms and we had an engine problem and we crashed. He said, sure. So we went to the hotel, I made all the arrangements to have people from Costa Rica pick me up. We were only 10, about 15 miles from the border. And uh, in the morning, when I go pick up the passport, I see strange people. Later on, I find out it was the Consul General from the United States to Panama. It was the head of the DEA for Panama, and it was the head of the G2 forces in Panama. They had searched the airplane. They had all the cocaine laid out on the table. They locked us up. I said, I want to talk to my lawyer. They slapped me and said, lawyer, you're in Panama, man. This is Napoleonic law. Hey, you're gonna, we can keep you for three years without anyone knowing who you are. I said, fine, keep me. I knew that sooner or later, somebody very high up was going to come and try to make a deal. Sure enough, two days later, the attorney general comes. And the attorney general says to me, you know, you're I said, look, look, let's not waste your time in mine. I don't want no speech. I got two questions. Number one, how much can I buy the cocaine back for? And number two, how much to get out of here? He looked at me, laughed, and said, Noriega just sold the cocaine. And... $250,000 for your lead. You know, $250,000 back then is like $2 million today. I gave him a number and a code. I said, call this number, get this code, 
you have your money here tomorrow. And he did. Day after tomorrow, he came over two days later and he said, everything's ready. We're going to take you to the city of Panama and uh, they're going to take you from the DEA to make you look good for them. And they're going to wrap you up a little bit, but just stick to your story that you were looking just to look for banana. You had no idea what was inside the airplane and you were headed to Nicaragua. I said, okay, we'll do that. So I told the pilot, that was the mistake I made. I said, look, I just bribed the attorney general. We're going to be out of here in two days. Just stick to your story. So they took us to the city of Panama and they took us in this room. It looked like a big old conference room, but nothing, no table, no furniture, just four chairs up against the wall. So we sat uh, in the chairs and all of a sudden they brought this Panamanian kid. It must have been 9,500 pounds soaking wet, maybe 5'1", five, 5'2". Five, looked like he was about 17, 18 years old. They laid him handcuffed to his hands and his feet on the floor naked and phased out and they stuck a broomstick up his rectum where blood just splattered all over the place. He just passed out. I thought they killed him. And they looked at us and they're like, we only caught him with 10 pounds of marijuana. <laughs> we just caught you with 200 kilos of cocaine. Oh, man. So the pilots just broke. And they're like, look, look, don't do nothing to me. Number one, George Valdez is the biggest drug dealer in the world. And number two, he just bribed the attorney general. And that's when things really went to hell. They took us in a dungeon and we were tortured for the next 27 days to the point that day and night, two, three times a day when we passed out, that for five years, every time I went to a bathroom, I passed blood. I mean, literally blood. And, uh, but you know, I had a mindset, which is something that I'm very passionate about. And my mindset was real, real simple. There's only one thing in life that I have control of. I have no control whether I'm rich or poor, sick or healthy, uh, dead or alive. The only thing I got control of is my word. And my mindset is I will die before I break my word. So no matter what they can do to me, no matter how much they beat me, I'm going to talk. Well, my only fear, though, as the days pass, is that I see this kid in front of me, and he's licking the, the bars, and he had gone insane. And I'm like, man, I just pray that I don't lose my head here. That's all I care about. I don't care about dying. It makes me no different. I don't want to be mentally retarded or, you know, damaged for the rest of my life. So, like, when we could take him more, I looked at the guys that were coming in to torture. I said, look, I want to tell you something. We knew that we'll leave till we pass out. I said, before you walk into a cell, I want to tell you, tell Noriega that he better kill me. Because if he doesn't kill me, when I get out of here, I will kill him, his family, his kids, everybody. And uh, they came and gave us a heck of a whooping that day. They put cattle prods to a testicle. When you jump three feet in the air, you don't know what part of that uh, area you start to pass out. And two days later, Noriega shows up. And I thought he was going to come to shoot us. And he was laughing. He's like, why are you mad at me? I didn't write you out. It was your own pilot. But more important, you paid the wrong guy. So I saw my window there. I said, how much to get out? He said, $250,000. i am like, man, is that like the going price? <laughs> I paid $250 for four guys before. Now it's $250 for two. And fine. Same exercise. They just numbered this code. And three days later, he came and said, they, uh, they paid money. I'm going to release you tomorrow. Take you to the airport. You want to go to Costa Rica, I'll get an airplane ticket for you, and you go to Costa Rica. They came in the morning and uh, with fire holes, because we had blood. There was nothing. There was no, in the cell, there was no uh, beds, no toilet, no sink, nothing. Just a throng over the back. Well, hopefully you'll see that. If for 28 days, so we have to go number two for 28 days. They took us in there, and I think the, the water to clean us up was 
much worse than the uh, torture, man. I mean, it was it hurt. It, it's like I don't know. I don't even know how to describe when someone is hitting you with uh, files, but it was it was pretty bad. And uh, they took it to the airport, but at the airport we're sitting there waiting for the plane from Costa Rica, as he had promised. And then all of a sudden, about twenty Interpol agents come. They pick us out like a sack of potatoes, threw us in the airplane, sent us to Miami. When in Miami, they charged him with they charged me with having the largest drug conspiracy in the world. They gave me the highest bond ever in the history of America. They asked for five million, ended up settling on two million. No one had ever been given fifty thousand dollar bond, especially for drugs. And uh, I went to trial and, and ended up giving 15 years, which during that time was the biggest sentence that could be. But I had just turned 23 years old. I was a kid. And people say, well, prison changed you. No, no, not, you know, prison doesn't change you. Uh, in prison, I had, a, I had a blast, you know. I had fun. A lot of people that worked for me or someone that worked for me, I could buy, I bought all the guards. I ate lobster, drank wine, did whatever I wanted to do, and didn't spend as much money as I used to on the street. So I got out and I was angry, you know, I, I'm bitter. No need to go back to that life because, number one, I was a multimillionaire. I, I couldn't spend all the money I had for the rest of my life. I remember my mother telling me, son, you know, what you did, did not please God and you destroyed us. And my mother and my father were my hero. They were everything in my life to me. But every time she mentioned that it didn't please God, it just made me stronger because I didn't believe in God, especially in prison. And this is what I tell people. You know, when you call yourself a Christian, whatever you call yourself in life, you gotta live up to that. Because in prison, everybody wanted to convert towards Valdez. Because I mean, like, I thought, man, if they make me, if they convert me uh, to Catholic or Protestant or, or whatever, they get a little jet right to heaven, you know? But I'm like, well, who's the Christian here? You Baptists said that the Pentecostals are going to hell because they dance. You Pentecostals said that the Baptists are going to hell because they don't believe in the Holy Spirit. The only thing you guys got in common is that you think that Catholics are the whore of the apocalypse. I said, well, first of all, you said you were going to go to heaven, and you scared to death of me sending you there. So heaven must not be that good, because I'm going to hell, and I don't give a damn when I go. And it was like that. And then a series of events happened. And one of the things that's really important for a listener that I talk about is about my mom. And this is for parents with kids. They go, well, my, my mom something really well. Number one, she... She taught us what true north was. She taught us what was right and what was wrong. But number two, she was very tough on us. And she was tough. She was tough with love. Which meant what? She would say, anytime she saw me, son, what you do doesn't please God. You destroy what you died in me. And the minute she finished that, then she turned around and said, what do you want me to cook you today? Do you want rice and beans? Do you want chicken? So she was tough on us, but at the same time, we could be loving. So there was no judgment or condemnation. So I could always come. I always had a place to go back to. A lot of times we think that tough love means we kick our kids' ass out of the house because they don't do what we say they're going to do it. At the end of the day, it doesn't help anything. They're our child no matter what they do in life. One day, my daughter was, uh, I wasn't supposed to visit with her. Well, prior to that, one day I was supposed to go to California. That day, I couldn't get on my airplane. And, uh, I went to my airplane. I felt good that morning. I always would have breakfast in the morning on the plane on my way to California. And when I put my first foot on that stair to go out the, uh, the airplane, I started throwing up and I had, and I had vomits. I had diarrhea. I went into the, my, my bathroom at the hangar and I stayed there for 30 minutes. I thought I was going to die. And then I thought I felt better. And when I went back, the minute I put my foot up, same thing happened. I'm like, 
So I looked at this guy, Eddie, was my right-hand guy. I'm like, Eddie, you know, you go. Tell him I'll go next week. But if I go, I'm just going to puke all over that damn airplane, you know? And he went. And he got murdered. There was a contact on my life, and they murdered him. And I was at the funeral uh, with his little daughter, who I had baptized. who was only one year older than my daughter. And uh, I remember her looking at me and saying, Godfather, my daddy went to be with Jesus. And uh, it was the first time since I left Cuba that I shed a tear. I had never, ever, not even tortured, not even shot at, nothing. I, had my, I, I didn't believe there was a tear in my eyes. And I shed a tear because I said to myself two things. Number one, when will my daughter say that to someone? I'll never see her again. And number two, if there is a Jesus, I'm certain we're not going there. And, uh, and I went by my business. Then one day, I was partying with some Hollywood celebrities, and my ex-wife dropped my daughter off to go to visit with her. And uh, when they brought her, I told the head of security, uh, I called the maid, uh, her, her nanny, and I said, listen, take her to her room, make sure she doesn't get out, and I'll have breakfast with her in the morning. And I went back to my room. I, my bedroom was 1,000 square foot, enormous, had a bar inside. And I went back to party. In the middle of the night, she gets out, and she started knocking. And she started saying, Danny, it's Crystal. And I told you, Josh, it was a feeling that if you have a child and you're on a boat, and your child begins to drown, and you can see their fingertips, and you can barely about to touch it, but you can't as they drown. That's how I felt. It was the only thing in my life that was sacred and pure and holy. And if I touch, if I open that door, I would contaminate her. And I went into the shower, and I began to scrub. That's what I told all the people in my room, get out. And they went to God, and I said, no, get out the window. And I chased everybody out the window, and I went into a shower. And for a guy that everybody said that eyes ran through my veins, I started to shake and shiver. And I tried to try to scrub that filth because I couldn't understand what had happened to my life. I went on in my bed and I was still shaking and, and I was just devastated. And when my daughter quit knocking, I waited about 10 minutes. I thought she went back to bed. And when I went out to get water, I opened the door and she was in the floor crying. And it destroyed me. And I said that day, I'm going to change. And this is what's important for people that want to make a change in life. I didn't know what that meant. All I knew was, I had to go a different route. So if I'm going south, I'm going to start going north. If I'm going east, I'm going to start going west. And the first thing I did, first thing that I tell people when you, when you want to change your life, change your environment. I left Miami, which I thought the world rose. Nothing would happen in Miami that I didn't authorize. I mean, everyone had enormous respect for me. And I moved out of Miami, didn't go back for years. And I moved into my ranch. I had this gorgeous uh, quarter horse ranch uh, about that you know, about 90 miles from Miami, 100 miles from Miami. And I went to my ranch and I lived there. And I knew that I could not go out the way I used to, number one, because now I don't have, I just walked away from the cartel. I know one thing, they don't have a very good retirement program. So when I told them I was done, I figured I had about a month to live. And that's how anguished my life was, that I was willing to die, but I couldn't go on what I was doing. And at this time, I was doing nothing. I wasn't even, I hadn't seen cocaine in a year and a half. All I would do is say, send it, don't send it. And I'd pay off the high government official that I, only I knew. So moved to my ranch, and I hired a guy to come teach me karate. And uh, the first day he came, he says, I'm going to teach you about the sword. I was putting on a gi. And I'm like, man, I'm a smart kid, man. I can't believe it. Here it is. This guy picked the guy. I love weapons. I picked the guy that. If we're going to get into weapons right off the bat, and lo and behold, he turns around, he's got a Bible. And I was so angry and irate. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I don't believe in that Bible. 
I don't believe what the Bible says, what the Bible stands for. I do believe that I'm paying a lot of money to come teach me karate. So tomorrow you leave the stupid sword home and you bring the real sword. <laughs> and it was the first man ever in my life in many, many years that got within 10 inches of my face and said, young man, what I got to give you, you got no money to pay. And I said to myself, I'll reach behind my back. I said, I don't have my gun. This guy's a seven degree black belt. He's going to begin to introduce Jesus into me by kicking him into me. And I'm going to be paid for it. I'm like, oh, hell no. I'm like, dude, here's what we're going to do. After the two hours of karate, we got to let the steam room heat up. And you waste your time. Talk to me. And he did. He did for three years. And I did everything in the world that I could to chase him away. And people said, what did he say to change your life? I said, really? Absolutely nothing. I don't remember nothing that he said. Well, one, because I was just getting over the two hours of butt kicking he was giving me. He said, but what you found life about that, everything he did. He was a man that to me in a very insignificant world. He had one house, probably 1,500 square feet. Uh, my guest house was 5,000. He had a, an old car. I had a million dollars worth of cars. He kept telling me how in love he was with his wife for 25 years. And I'm like, if he got married at 20, she's 45. Oh, this guy's nuts. How the hell can you love a 45-year-old woman? You know, now she's gorgeous. Uh, I love them to death. I said, but I got all the supermodels, and I hate every single one of them. It's impossible. This guy must be taking some type of an oriental drug or something, you know? But I, when I kept asking him, like, hey, Tim, really, man, dude, well, why are you so happy about it? You got nothing. And he's like, you know, George, I have an intimate relationship with Christ. And I'm like, wow, man, that is so weird. I said, man, number one, how do you know that even exists? Number two is, I I got all these people around me that die for me, and I can't have an intimate relationship with any of them. How can you have a relationship with someone you don't even know whether they're real or not? And he said he did. See, and what's important about it, he never tried to get me to go to church. He never tried to get me to convert. All he did is allow me to see the love of God through him. And this is what I tell people. Look, I don't care. You're white, black, yellow, pink, red. I don't care if you're Catholic, Baptist, I'm Catholic, Baptist, Protestant, Pentecostal, Jewish, Muslim, you love nature, you love frogs. I don't care if you're gay, you're straight, Christ, whatever the hell you want to be, that's up to you. All I'm going to tell you is this. I'm not going to tell you to change anything. All I'm going to tell you is my story. How I fell in love with a Jewish carpenter whose love was so big that transformed the most heart of all hearts. After three years of coming, uh, one day, I had just, in desperation, when my wife, my ex-wife, our divorce was final, and she's dragging my daughter away, I uh, go into my room. And I remember that just like I'm talking to you right now. It was July 1st, 1990, about between 10.30 and 11 o'clock in the morning. I got on my knees and I said, God, first of all, I don't believe you exist. So I need to be honest and say this. I'm probably just talking to myself right now. Number two, by some crazy coincidence, you do exist. I know you're looking at me and say, George, you're so bad, I don't want you up here. But number three, if you do exist, you do want me. Change my heart or kill me. Because I spend the rest of my life telling people you're fraud. And people think that when you convert or you come into a relationship with a higher power, whatever your life changes, man, my life went from hell to pure hell. Within three months, I get arrested and I get charged. I've been away from the cartel now for four plus years. I get arrested and I am facing a life sentence. When I committed my crime, the most they could give me is 15 years. But in November of 1987, the law changed to what we have now, which are the minimum mandatory laws. So my 15 years back then 
could have been three life sentences. Conspiracy to import, conspiracy to put one you were going to import, and conspiracy to distribute what you were going to possess, that you were going to import even though you did nothing. Or you didn't have a conversation with so That's the law. I get arrested at a whole show. They told me that my dad is the idea to live. My ex-wife disappears with my children that were my life. And my attorney comes to see me. When I finally get, because I was arrested in St. Louis, when I finally get to uh, Mobile, Alabama, he comes to see me and he's like, don't worry, we're going to win this. He said, the only uh, witness against you killed himself last night while he was a government witness. He crashed with an, a DA airplane full of drugs. And I'm like, I'm looking at him and he's like, all you got to do is go there and say you're innocent. So he's been my attorney forever. And I said, Alan, let me tell you this. Here you are, a good Jew. Tell me I'm going to go home. Then I give my life to this other Jew that ain't saying nothing to me. So, but I want to tell you this. I can go in and then tell him I'm guilty. I might not be guilty of that crime, but I'm guilty of what I've done. And I can't fight these people the rest of my life. And I want to change my life. And if this guy doesn't change my life, I don't give a crap if I die in a prison or where I die. I've been walking around dead for many, many years. I said, so what do they want? He said, basically, they want all your money. See, the government could take nothing in my first case. I said, well, let's go. So we went into the prosecutor's office, and they're like, well, lots of money, little time, little money, lots of time. I'm like, all right, you know how much I got? And she said, no, but I know who does. And she opened the door, and four agents came out, DEA, FBI, Customs, IRS, special agents. And they're like, we know exactly everything you own, everything you got, and how much you spent. And I tell people, you know how, how long it takes to go from being worth $60 million to dead broke? About two minutes. That's all it takes for you to sign everything you got. And uh, my attorney said, look, the only thing that we ask, we'll, we'll voluntarily forfeit all the money, but we ask you to sentence him under the law when he committed the crime. The prosecutor said, we'll recommend that, but it's up to the judge. And uh, we went for the judge, and the judge says, we reject any plea agreement you got with the government, or have reached with the government, looked them in the eyes and said, young man, it is my intention to give you a life sentence. You will die in a federal prison. I looked at him and I said, Your Honor, with all due respect, and I have tremendous respect for the man, I said, you can only give me what God wants to give me. And if this God doesn't change my heart and my life, I don't give a damn if I die in a prison or in the streets. Took place. I'm dead already. By God's grace, I ended up, because I ended up getting the, the 10 years, which is what they could have given me for violation of parole. And uh, because, number one, they knew that I walked away on my own four years earlier. Number two, statute of limitations ran out on everybody. I didn't have to testify against anyone. And number three, I was voluntarily giving him every penny that I had. You know, and I went into that cell and I was dead broke. And I said to myself, and this is what I'm passionate about, what I do now with mindset. You know, I said, I have two choices in life. I can let the time do me or I can do the time. And if I can do the time, then I'm not going to do what prisoners say. Prisoners say, look, if you sleep 12 hours a day, you're going to sleep half of your sentence away. And I'm like, no, I'm going to waste half of my life. So I'm going to make believe I'm in a monk, and I'm going to start learning about this God and learn because, you know what, maybe I want to be the best theologian in the world. And I got another bachelor's in prison. I taught myself Greek. Got out, went to Wheaton College, became, finished my master's there and became a adjunct faculty. And then I went to the University and got a PhD, one of five Hispanics in the country with a PhD. And I was recruited by every university in America. I was named a Hispanic doctoral student in America. Then my dad died. When my dad died, I, I was missing him tremendously. And I'm like, you know, he never gave me anything. 
what am I missing? And all of a sudden, you know, I realized this. Yeah, he gave me what was worth. And that was my time. His time. He was always with me. I was always with him. And he gave me his wisdom. And he gave me his love. Even though my father never said, I love you. But I knew he adored me. And we spent a lot of time together. And I had tremendous respect for him. And I'm like, you know, how am I stupid from my prior marriage? Don't remember me. Someone that sent a check every month. Had a good time. And I moved. I told my wife. At that time, I married the most amazing woman in the world. And I'm going to Georgia. She's like, what are you going to do in Georgia? I said, I don't know. Got to provide, but I'm going to be a dad to my kids. I want to be there. I want to go see their ballet. I want to see their baseball games. And, uh, and we did. We started a little clean company, the baseball of our house, and we built it in 10 years into a multi-million dollar national international company. And then one day I'm sitting there and I'm like, if a man cannot define what enough is enough, the greed will drive him. So I retired, finished, and uh, we had a foundation. We get 10% of all our earnings. And I said, I want to go and make a difference in the world. And first, we moved to Mexico for five years so that our kids will learn a different culture because my wife and I both came from poverty. Well, no matter how humble we wanted to keep our kids and no matter the fact that we never allowed them ever in their life to have more than $100 for Christmas and three toys, we told them, Jesus got three, that's what you're going to get. Never fine with that. But... We lived in a gorgeous neighborhood. Our company had jets. Again, we lived in a multi-million dollar home. So no matter how much we tried to get them to know that, that is not reality. You know, it's easy to be a, a, a person of faith in the suburbs. I wanted them to see the reality of life. And uh, I wanted them to go to a country where they can see people that love God and are faithful to God and are good people, but yet they still miss a meal or two weeks. And we did, and then we came back to the United States. And uh, and what I do now is I'm just passionate about writing. I speak all over the world. I write books. I read eight, nine books. And uh, I have the podcast. Everything that I do, I mean, I'm, I'm wealthy from my company. So every penny that I get, I'm the only guy that writes books and does podcasts, speaks, and uh, doesn't personally profit from it. You know, it goes to, I buy books, and I send thousands and thousands of books to prison. That's my way of making a difference in the world. We built the only Catholic church inside the United States penitentiary at uh, Angola, Louisiana. And uh, and now, because of this virus, as I was talking to you earlier, I decided to write this journal. Because forever, for a lot, of, a lot of time, people used to ask me, and I coach. I've been coaching very high-level networks people uh, that trust anybody else, but they feel that somehow they can trust me. If I was tortured, they'd say nothing. They can do that because we look at these people, very wealthy CEOs, multi-billionaires, they struggle just like you and I. They have marriage problems. They have children problems. The only difference between them and us is they have more stuff. But as far as life, the same challenge. Employees, life, questions, insecurities. I, I coach high-level athletes, elite uh, professional, uh, mainly professional baseball player. And uh, the reason I allow this group into me is because, like, how are you able to overcome all that you've overcome in life and be happy and not bitter? How is it that you see the world so much different? And I've always thought about writing a book to teach people to do that. And it wasn't until the virus came along and see how scared people are, how petrified people are, and uh, and desperate people are. And I said, when they said to me, are you not afraid? I'm like, no, I'm not afraid. Say, how how can I be afraid of a, of a virus? I said, if a virus takes me, when I get up there to heaven, I have this conversation with Jesus. 
over that good old wine that he makes and say, hey, dude, you know, it's like, you let me fall off an airplane at 3,000 feet. You let me torture and I live. I was shot up 29 times one time and I live. You let me go through all that. You let that virus take me kind of more creative than that. <laughs> so I look at that and, and, and I'm very tough. So I'm writing this book called Narco Mindset Journal. It's a 12-week program where people can learn how to transform their lives and their mind and how they think so that you don't look at failure. I don't know what the word failure means. To me, anything that happens in life is just a learning experience, right? How do I know it's a failure? Would I, how would I ever know that what would have happened had I taken the other choice? So you only, you only have the result of one choice. When you have various choices in life and you make one, you only have that result. And you can base good or bad on that on what could happen with the other ones because you don't know. So I don't look at that word failure. I don't believe the word in my dictionary, I can't do, exist. You know, I don't believe that I am defined by how many times I've fallen down. I'm defined how much I get up. Uh, I'm not going to let the world define me as a twice convicted drug dealer. I'm going to reinvent myself. I want to give people hope. I want to give people to find redemption. I want to let people live a good life. You know, it's easy right now <clears throat> to tell people stay home. For me, it's very easy to be quarantined a month. Think about it. I was quarantined for 10 years. <laughs> 10 years in a three by eight cell. I live in a 5,000 square foot house, three by eight cell without women, without Netflix. So to this, it's a piece of cake. But it's easy to tell that to people and say, it's very easy to say, you got to worry about your health versus the economy when your refrigerator is full and we in the bank. But there's so many people right now in America hurting so much that their economy is their health. You know, we don't realize the anguish and the mental health because we ignore mental health. Mental health is a big problem in America, but we don't care. And if this virus should teach us things, should teach us, number one, that life is frail, number two, that we're all intertwined, that life is too short to spend it hating people, that love can transform lives, that faith can make you smile versus cry, that we don't have to stay where we're at, we can reinvent ourselves, we don't have to accept labels. We we are better than our choice. And the fact that we're here today, and that's all we're guaranteed. All we're guaranteed right now, Josh, is this moment you and I have. The rest of it is not guaranteed. We could be gone. Right. And then at the other day, for me as a Christian, the day I go, I'm like, you know, listen, see what God has for me. And I've seen a lot of greatness and beauty. So I'm excited about going now. Don't get me wrong. I'm not in a rush to go there. <laughs> but whenever time comes, I go, I got nothing to do. Yeah. So, um, man, that is, there's so much to take in. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, I can definitely tell you've been a motivational speaker for a really long time because you share your story and then you always have, you know, kind of what you learned at that aspect at that point in your life. And I think that's amazing. You know, you brought up kind of a lot of the struggles that you've overcome and, um, also, you know, the whole virus and how, you know, it's, a time of fear for some, but then also, you know, it can be a time for growth. And for me, this is actually, this virus coming is kind of what pushed me to start this podcast. So, um, you know, a lot of good things can still come out of this time. But speaking of struggle, I mean, you have been at the highest of high and the lowest of low, but what would you consider um, was your biggest struggle? Well, it, it was numerous struggles. One of the things that people said, do you miss your own life? Of course I do. How could I not miss all those jets and all those cars? But I wouldn't trade it for the life I live now because I don't miss the emptiness and I don't want to trade the joy that I have. So 
the worst drug in the world and the thing that was hardest for me to get over was power. You know, and that's why we see all these politicians out there willing to sell their soul to the devil because they don't want to get all the power, right? So that that was uh, a struggle. And for me, the biggest struggle that I found, especially, well, it depends. If you ask a question, what was your biggest struggle in the cartel? Because what was your biggest struggle when you left the cartel? So let's talk about when I left the cartel. The biggest struggle was realizing that, my God, my evil world was a lot more honest than this world. I would die for you, and so would all my guys, number one. Number two, if I told you yes, it was going to be yes. If I told you no, it was going to be no. I would never, i die before I tell you a lie. You know, and I come into, especially after leaving the country, you know, Christian world, and what do I find? That truth doesn't matter. Now we got alternative truth. We got all the redefining truth. You know, so the truth of the matter is the truth matters. And the how we love people matters. And that I'm not more important than anybody. And if I look out for you, God will look out for me. And at the end of the day, we're all brothers and we're just a sprayer. So the big struggle was living in a world where there was really no absolutes. Coming from a world that you say, wow, that world is so bad and so evil. And it was, don't get me wrong, by no means. But there was integrity. There was truth. We helped the poor. We built houses. We built hospitals. You know, we did all those things. We, we didn't allow the powerful to abuse the person that had less. So that was that was a big struggle. Yeah, so um, listening to some of your podcasts, you actually mentioned how hard society makes it to transition back into society from people who were previously incarcerated. And, um, you know, I think that kind of goes into, you know, a transition that you went through as well was from getting back into society and trying to transition and get used to all of that. And, uh, you know, in your podcast, you mentioned that, you know, we don't make that easy for people. Was that one of the struggles that you had in addition? A tremendous struggle. And, and I'll tell you this, and, and this is amazing. Uh, and I want you to listen to pay attention because we have been lied to big time, big, big time. We can, well, I can talk about the war on drugs later, but let's talk about the criminal justice system. And let's talk about inmates and let's talk about the recidivism rate and rehabilitation. I'm here to tell you, people want to be rehabilitated. The first lie that we've been told is we are making uh, laws that are tough on crime to keep you safe. That's bullshit. When we'll tell you that next time, uh, listen, quit lying to me. I'm not an idiot. They have made a business out of the prison system. And the truth of the matter is you are treated very differently if you have money versus someone that has no money. Now, I'm not saying that I did the deal that I got because I had $16 million to give to the government. Versus someone that walks in there and can hire, I'm, I spent a million dollars in attorneys. Versus someone that cannot hire an attorney. This laws where you got people doing a life sentence that are not criminals. There are people suffering with mental issues. Addicts are not criminal. How about these laws that, oh, you, you robbed a neighbor's cat when you were little and you called the police. And then you were caught with two joints of marijuana in high school and they called the police. And now you sell a pound of marijuana, well, you three strikes you out, you're going to go to jail. It's a lie. And the problem with the lie is that you and I are paying for it. You and I, the taxpayer, pay for so much that if anything in the world should teach us this virus is that we need to hold our elected officials accountable and say, no, 
Every American has a right to health care. You know, and listen, I was a Republican all my life. And I believe in, in, in I'm a social conservative. I believe in, in small government, but all that is disappearing now. So what has happens is no matter these people want to, like I said one time in my podcast, I said, look, when I came out of prison, it was difficult because I knew people were judging me everywhere. Anyone found out, you know, they would judge me. And there was no internet at that time, which I call a big snitch. <laughs> but the thing about it was that all of a sudden I was able to get a PhD. And now all of a sudden I was able to put that life behind because I was a PhD. I was respected. I had the highest academic record. So, but had George Valdez come out of prison and not been able to get a PhD and have to go to work and have this label that said convicted felon, don't hire me. And I could feed my family. You know what I was going to do? I was going to go back to Miami and sell drugs. Now, did that mean that my change and my rehabilitation was not real? No, it was very real. People say, oh, jailhouse religion. Listen, that's bullshit. There's no such thing as jailhouse religion. It's tough to become a Christian in prison. You're laughed up. You're mocked up. These kids want to change. We just don't give them a chance. I mean, there's programs. Because I tell you, I ran two programs at Tallahassee. That rehabilitate, that these kids can be rehabilitated and go back to society and, and help the younger generation. When you lock up a father, you don't lock up a man. You lock up his children. Now that child has two and one chance of going to prison himself. You lock up his mother. You lock up his wife. You destroy it. You put a burden on the, on the, on the system because now they got to take welfare. So the crime that, that you're punishing one person for is ridiculous. You got prisons full for drug crime. In, in many states, you get 10 to 20 years for murder. But in the federal government, it takes nothing to get a life sentence. So instead of spending all this money, putting up, you know, we're 24%, 24% of the world's population, right? Very minute. And yet, and yet, we have the majority of inmates in the world. And that is very, very sad because that's to me is a sign of a failed society. So we need prison reform and we need to take that burden away from society so we can use that money to create the things that we need to give people health care. Look, it's beautiful. We're looking at this right now. I saw yesterday Chef Andre, who uh, does those uh, World Kitchen, you know, as feeding people at every catastrophe uh, there is. Well, he's saying that he's got 50 of them. You think some of them have a line, some of them have a line that, that goes for 10 miles, 10,000 people. People are sleeping in their cars and they're trying to get food to eat. We are destroying this nation. And, and in a nation where, so, and I'm a poet, right? So I don't believe in communism or socialism, but I believe in a just society. You cannot have the disparity that we exist where so many people have so much, so few people have so much, and so many people have nothing. So look at that mother right now. 40% of our children are being raised by a single mom. Now, if you don't cry over the fact that that mom, even though she might have a job somewhere, she can't go to work right now because who's going to take care of her child? So we, we, we just, you know, we're very quick uh, about judging people that he's a criminal, he deserves to go to jail. No, listen, listen, I believe that everyone that commits a crime needs to pay for the crime. I'm a great believer in that. But the crime, the punishment must fit the crime. And we can't allow the government to make a business out of the crime. Take the war on drugs, Josh. Cocaine is 10%. Just think about this. So you listen. Cocaine is 10% of all the drug overdoses in America. Yet it's 100% of the war on drugs, which costs billions of dollars we have spent. We have spent billions of dollars. And you know how much difference we made in the last 40 years? 
zero. You kill Pablo Escobar, I said, no one worse. Kill Los Chapa, no one worse. They're waiting in line by the thousand. You'll never eliminate the cartel. So now we spend all that money, go out through all those big bad guys for 10% of our, our drug overdose. This percent of our drug overdose is legal opens. Why are we not going out to big pharma? Why are not we attacking them and say, look, drugs don't kill people like guns don't kill people, okay? But we got to have the people that make guns do something to be to, to help people that, that have mental issues or whatever not get their hands on those guns. And we need to tell farmers, listen, you make billions and trillions. You got a moral responsibility to help people. But we live in a world that no one gives a damn about anyone. Today, this virus has taught us that we should give a damn about people, man. Because any of us, it could be tomorrow, it could be you, it could be me, has no respect or this guy don't care what gender you are, what nationality you are, where the hell you live at. So therefore, we need to look and we need to care about our neighbors, man. There's a whole suffering world out there. We need to come clean with people. We need to be honest. And we need to love people. Listen, there's a lot of people, I don't politicians, and I'm not talking about all, it's good and bad, you know that. And same thing with pharma. There's, there's great pharmaceutical doing great stuff to heal people. Right now, we don't realize, I marked this today, we're doing this podcast. I promise you, by the end of this year, I promise you there will be three to one suicides, there will be three to one death in suicide versus what this virus will take. If this virus takes 50, I guarantee there's going to be 150,000 suicides. And that's what it is. Not this people. How about drug pills? They're going to be double. Because guess what? Think about how this world works. Those people are getting a check of unemployment. We have a lot of people that are on drugs. Number two, pharmaceutical companies and drug stores are open. So they're going to get their drugs. The shady the doctors that open the pain clinics to give kids, oh, I have a back pain. How do you prove that you have but you don't have? And, the, and they give you all those drugs and all those drugs. That's going to be a worse catastrophe than this drug. Listen, the media. You know, if you're on my podcast, I talk hard against the media. Don't give me your crap. Listen, you hate this president so bad you want to make him. You want to destroy him and you don't give a crap who you scare. So here's the deal. As the governors decide to open up, if you feel that they should not open up, here's what you do. You live in America. Stay home. Don't go out. Take care of yourself, but don't hold prisoners, those that need to go out, those that must go out and feed their family and work. You can't do that. Like me going to prison and say, I want everyone to come to prison with me. No. If I was, if I want to commit a crime and I want to go to prison, I should take all this that don't. And that's what is happening in society. Be socially conscious. You know, wash your hands. Stay six feet away from people. The world is not going to change. The world has changed. There's a lot of things that we can do. But we must think about not us, because the people that you hear stay home are the people that have no problem. But if you're going to lose your house tomorrow or the roof over your head tomorrow, and you don't have money to buy pampers for that child, and you don't have money to buy milk, you want this damn thing. Look, you know what? I don't give a crap if the virus is waiting for me outside the door. If I got to feed my family, I'm going to go out there and work to feed my family, even if I got to battle the, the virus. If it's going to kill me, then it kill me. And if it doesn't, it's not that. Not that I'm not sensitive to people. There's a lot of people dying, and I hurt for anybody that dies. You need to see what's going on. And another thing you see is that I have a friend whose wife is a director of a big hospital. The media don't tell you that a lot of people that are dying have serious medical issues like diabetes and obesity. 
the virus is teaching us something is teaching us, let's start taking care of our health. Let's walk a little more, you know, let's yeah. drink a little less. Yeah. So I love that message that you have, you know, that you're just really genuinely trying to help people, especially with your background, with your special interests. I can definitely tell that you have a passion, you know, for especially around prison ministry. You know, you did mention that you built, you know, the first Catholic church in in Angola and, uh, you know, that you're super committed to not just helping those that are in prison, but then also that transition getting out. So would you say that that is your biggest passion is, you know, revolving around prison ministry? Yeah, my biggest passion is giving people a second chance. And I, God gave a second chance. Everybody deserves a second chance. My biggest passion is making a difference in someone's life and empowering our youth. Abraham Lincoln said that our youth, the fate of a humanity lies in the hands of our youth. Instead of criticizing our children that they're addicted to you know, this and that, why don't we empower them? Why don't challenge them? Another one of my passion is challenging fathers. Listen, be a man. Take care of your home. I hope this is why I told you that the difference that you might have with your wife are insignificant compared to what's going on. And your children, they don't need more stuff. I did an event not too long ago with billionaires. And at the end of the day, I finished, and I got a standing ovation, but I finished with this. How many freaking zeros do you need? How many zeros do you need? The wealthiest is not the one that has the most people. The wealthiest is the one that needs the least, you know? And we Americans are amazing. No, we sacrifice our health to make our wealth, and then we spend our wealth trying to get our health back. Our children are hungry for our attention. And if God had anything to do with this virus, or if God is trying to teach us anything with this virus, I'm not saying that it is or that it does. I'm just saying for George Valdez, maybe one of the things is stop. Uh, I created a publishing company. I call it SLT, Sierra Lima Tango. Stop, listen, and turn around. You can't change your life, man, unless you stop. This virus, Josh, has stopped the world. Damn it. If we have stopped, now why don't we freaking listen? And if we're listening to our children, to our spouses, to our relatives, to our friends, we can turn around, make a difference. Yeah. You're not stuck in the path you're on. Yeah, I love that. Especially, you know, the turning around aspect. I think that really just means making a change and being positive. And, um, you know, genuinely having an optimistic look, you know, and um, trying to drive that positive change. So I think that especially in these times, you know, with the virus around, I think it's especially important to be excited about something. So what's the one thing that's got you most intoxicated about today? The thing that's got me the most intoxicated today is that we're going to live in a very dynamic and different world. And I'm very, very excited about the fact that hopefully a lot of people are going to see what is going on and hopefully we're going to be able to put many families together and give children that love that they want, the hunger they want. Uh, I don't want parents to say, listen, I never saw it coming with the child hugging themselves. No, truth is you were not looking. So I'm praying that I'm excited about the virus. I'm excited that teachers are getting the recognition for the heroes that they are. And I pray that when this is over, I'm realizing it's not going to be happening again that we fight to give those teachers what they deserve. I'm excited about the fact that we can work out of the house a lot of people now and they can spend more time with their children. I'm excited about the fact that there's new heroes. Our military has been our heroes and that's wonderful and they should be, but now we got nurses and doctors that are our heroes. Uh, I'm excited about the fact that nothing stays stagnant in this world and that we have an opportunity to change, to change our mindset, to think differently, to look to different lenses. I see this generation today that everybody's given up on 
And I see that this generation can do so much good because I see kids and I work, I've done events, 20, 30, 40,000 people. And I see young people that are so committed, that have a social conscience. Listen, in our, my generation, it was about making money, right? We're good people and honest. Don't get me wrong. But we really didn't have that social conscience that this generation that cares about the planet, that cares about having sensible gun laws. You know, I love the First Amendment. I love the Second Amendment. I love guns. I don't have any because I just don't want to have guns. But first of all, it'd give me 20 years if I did. <laughs> so I don't believe anyone should take anybody's gun. But we need to have laws that are sensible. If a guy is have a, a record of beating women up, should own nothing. He should not even own a toothpick. You know, I'm excited about that we think that we can think differently. And I'm hopeful, hopeful that somehow this virus stops the hatred and division that we have among families and friends over whether who we like or not. And then I'm hopeful that we pray for our president. We pray for our leaders. Doesn't mean we like him. If we don't like him, you know what? There's November 25th, 26th. Make a difference there. But in the meantime, you're cold because if we have common sense, Josh, the president's success is your and my success. His failure is yours and mine. Right. So yeah. listen, and I'm not saying I voted for him or I would vote for him. That's not the case. It could be anybody. It doesn't have to be this specific president. Anyhow, pray for them because it's hard to lead our nation. I don't think that the world has changed for bad. I think the world is going to change for good. I think that Things are going. To, things are very, very different. We're going to be more conscious of our health, uh, more conscious about hygiene. Uh, we look at staying home. What is done to our planet? I mean, I, I go to Europe a lot. Venice, you can those canals look like a, you know, look like a source. Now they say that the water is crystal clear and you can see animal life. And so I'm, I'm excited about this generation that they've been doing this stuff. Because my daughter, you know, she won't get, be able to graduate. She works so hard. She got full ride to a week in college, and uh, she worked so hard for her graduation and her prom, and, you know, she'll never be able to have that again. But, yeah. you know, we tell our kids that we don't focus on what we lose in life because nothing, that, everything that we have is borrowed. We focus on what we have and what we can get if. Yeah. And as long as you do that, you'll be happy, man. Yeah, and that actually kind of coincides with the saying that you just said of uh, the wealthy isn't who have the most, it's uh, who need the least. And, and uh, you know, even though we may not be able to receive all the other things, I think we've received in other ways, like all the love and time that, you know, we'll never get back. So all that time that we got to share since we've been all staying home, right? Well, and that, and that is more precious than anything. Play exactly. board games. I started playing Monopoly with my kids. I play Uno, we play cards. We hadn't done that before. You know, we were all so busy. My daughter would come from school and she'd go do her homework. We'd eat dinner as a family, very important in our home. And then she'd go to bed. But now she has time. And uh, and we enjoy that tremendously. And, you know, don't be mad at the quarantine because you have to stay home. You should be happy that you have to stay home with your family. Be mad at the fact that it's hurting a lot of people. Right. That's what we should be mad at. We yeah. should be mad for those ourselves. And then hopefully... When we can go out there and we go to a restaurant instead of spending a hundred dollars, perhaps spend fifty and give fifty to that waitress that hasn't had a job and God knows how much she owes just to survive. You know, look at those cashiers at, at the grocery store and those grocery stores you can give them a tip. Give them a tip, man. Just be thankful and grateful to God. You know, and this is one thing I finish speaking a lot. I say, you know, if you want to see the greatness of life in God, is number one, you have to visit a prison so that you can appreciate freedom. You got to visit 
as a hospital so you can appreciate your health. You gotta visit a cemetery so you can appreciate life. And remember that the floor you're walking on today, the floor you're walking on today could be the ceiling you lay under tomorrow, you know? Yeah, no, that is awesome. It's very, very powerful. I think that is a, a great message. George, now it's time for our sips of success. And this is just um, some quick questions here just for our audience to really get to know a little bit more about you. I mean, you did an amazing job sharing your story and um, obviously all the lessons that you learned. So I think just the value, if we were to stop right now, that you've delivered for our audience today is absolutely amazing. But uh, we'll go ahead and continue with these questions. You ready? Ready. Let's all go. right. All righty. So who is your biggest hero my father he lost everything he had on earth he was a multi-millionaire at the age of 23 came to the United States to clean toilets for jc penny for 85 cents an hour and never complained my dad i love that all right so uh, what is your favorite way to de-stress my favorite way to de-stress is to write to walk and pray i pray a lot i spend a lot of time in prayer yeah. And I think that's especially important because of how much you emphasize, you know, in, in your previous life, how you almost resented God, didn't believe. And I mean, just for you to be able to say that you have God in your life now, I think it's just amazingly powerful. Yeah, it does provide a lot of de-stress. Yeah. And, you know, and I think this is what I tell people, listen, when when we die, if there's a heaven and I believed in it, man, I lived a good life, wonderful. And if there's not a heaven and I believed in it, at least I was not depressed and miserable, wondering where the heck I was going to go. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a win-win situation. Right, right. And I love the juxtaposition of, you know, you not just saying it to say it, but having experienced it of a life without God versus a life with God. And, you know, you're feeling unfulfilled back then and then fulfilled now. So by no means am I trying to enforce religion on anybody, but I mean, oh, I just no, love hearing that. that from you. Hey, listen, some of my closest friends don't believe in nothing. And I love them because they're amazing people in Taylor and very lovable. I don't care what anybody in life is, as long as you're a decent human being. Yeah, there you go. All right, so what would you say is the best advice given to you that helped you through a tough time? This too shall pass. And believe, believe that you are able to withstand things that you never, ever believed in your life you could. And if you have faith and you know that this too shall pass and you will look behind, then don't waste the time while you're in that journey crying, waste that time learning so that you can be, become better. You will not be defined by your failures. You will be defined how quickly you get back up. And it does not matter if we spend the rest of our life trying to get back up. We just don't lay down. Oh, that is awesome. So um, go ahead and share one of your personal habits that help you be your best self. You know what? I, I said that uh, when I was young, there was a movie called Love Story. And the movie said, uh, love means never having to say sorry. Well, when I got older in life, I realized the biggest bunch of lies. Love means having to say you're sorry all the time. You know, I don't know how many times I adore my wife. We've been together now 25 years, and I thought of living a day without her. It just breaks my heart. But the truth of the matter is I say sorry a lot more than I say a lot of other things because we are, we are weak people, we are frail people. And as long as we have a forgiving heart and we have a, the recognition that, listen, yeah, I can be sorry and I can be better. You know, I can just do a little better and I can be thankful. One quick story, if you don't mind about being thankful. You know, I told the story that a rich man in New York is looking out the window and he sees a poor person and he's like, man, thank God I'm not poor. The poor person sees someone in an ambulance and said, thank God. And that's sick. And also the sick person in the hospital sees someone being brought back. 
mine in a stretcher covered up and says, man, thank God, I'm not dead. The only person that can give thanks is the dead person. Everybody else can thank for whatever we got. The dead person can, can give thanks anymore. So there's no way till we die. So think about, man, I should say thank you. Thank you for life. Thank you for being my friend. Thank you for listening to me, for being there in my times of trouble. Yeah, I love that. Um, and I'm definitely going to use that story. So I hope you don't mind if I share that. <laughs> I copied it from somebody else. Hey, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, not, nothing unique. I wish I knew that it worked. Oh, that, yeah, that's great. So, you know, speaking of being thankful, I think that transitions really well into being into being happy and successful. Now, you lived a life at the highest high of being on top of the world with millions of dollars and a life of luxury to the lowest of low where, you know, you're incarcerated and no money. So this question was definitely the one that I've been awaiting, you know, super excited to hear your answer. But um, how do you define happiness and success? Success for me is, you know, and that's a really great question. And, and I, I define it a lot. Success, especially because we want our children to be successful. So how do you find success for your children? That they become wealthy? That they be, become rich? I have a child that's very gifted athlete. Could have been a major league player. Could have been a professional golfer. So success would have been that he would have been either. No. I define success this way for my children. Being content and happy wherever you are in life, as long as you are, know that you're given life and what you do, all you got. That is success. Success is... You know, I tell people, if you hate your job, it doesn't matter if you make a million dollars a year. If you find your passion, it doesn't matter if you make 10 cents an hour. That's what you will do. You know, find our passion. So success for me is finding what I'm passionate about, what I'm dreaming about, because my success today actually was my dream yesterday, right? So, and for me as a father, now in life that I've been through so much at the age of 64, my greatest success is knowing that one day my children will go to heaven with me. And as long as they're happy, I don't care if they clean toilets. You know, I'm very, very pro-family. I'm very pro-marriage between men and women. But if my children turn out to be gay and get married and they're happy, I'm happy. Because all I want is for my children to find their passion, to find integrity, to be honest, and to be loving people. If they do that, that is success in life. Success is not measured by how much you make. Listen, I, my maid asked me one day, can you move from the sofa so we can clean behind it? They sure. And what she did, there was a bag that was $700,000, 1977. $3 million today. I have no idea how long that bag had been there. So that gives you an idea how much money we had. I found success and love and meaning in my life when I laid in that jail in Mobile, Alabama, not having a honor to go home to see my father was alive, but only that my life had been, that I was created for something much greater. That's when I believed that I found success. I didn't find success because I wanted in academia to make the best college and become a PhD. No, that was not success to me. Success is knowing that, you know what, every day, I can't be the best father, I cannot be the best husband, and I cannot be the best friend. But if every day I pray that I can be a little better father, a little better husband, a little better friend that I can do. And at the end of many, many days, I've been a lot better father, friend, and, you know, husband. So success is being, finding your passion and being happy. Just right where you're at. To me, also success is that she's someone hurting, I hurt. 
if I don't hurt when someone is hurting, to me, something's wrong with me. Wow. Wow. That is awesome. So honestly, I couldn't have said that better myself. I absolutely love your take on that. And I can tell that you meant every word because I'm looking at you and getting a little teary eyed. So I mean, I, I can genuinely feel that you mean every single word. And I love that. So now it's time for uh, last call. And uh, George, so what this means is if you have any last minute piece of parting advice that you'd like to share with our listeners, now's the time to do it. And then also, if you could end with the best way to connect with you. The, the most important thing during this time that I have for our listeners is fear. The opposite of fear is love. Fear not, love more. This too is going to pass. Help those, everyone that you can. At the end of the day, if the pages of history are written, history will only remember those that have impacted somebody else's life. So during this time, Instead of listening to the media, try to scare the daylights out of you for whatever agenda they have, turn it off. Once you've heard to wash your hands and once you've heard to stay socially distant, there's nothing else you need to hurt here. It makes no difference how many people have been infected, how many people are dying. The difference is you should hurt for them, but there's nothing you can do. So fear not. And instead of being fearful, have faith. And if you're not a person, a religious person, you're not, and you might be not be, that's fine. Then love more. Because it doesn't matter if we have faith or don't have faith, if we believe in God or don't, we can all love. And love will change the world. Unconditional love will change the most heart of all hearts. And, you know, I urge your listeners, you, you mentioned my podcast that we do. I've never worked so hard in my life to try to make a difference in the world. But you can listen to my podcast at Narco Mindset Podcast. We have weekly and I have weekly updates and I think of something and I write and I record it. Uh, you can go to my YouTube channel. You can go to my webpage, Jorge Valdez with an S at the end, like Sam, PhD.com, Jorge Valdez, PhD.com and sign up to our community. You'll get a free copy of my book, my latest book. If you want to interested in, in looking into how do you change your mind? How do you look at the world different? How can you look at the world in victory versus defeat? How can you look at a glass half full versus half empty? How can you look at any obstacle as not an obstacle, but an opportunity? How can you learn critical habits? How can you eliminate critical flaws in your life? Then just look at Marco mindset. Hopefully I'll finish that journal here this coming week. Uh, it's a lot of work, but it's not www.mindset. So that's the journal. The podcast is Marco mindset. And the web page is Jorge Valdez. PhD.com. I'd love to hear from you. You can email me. I answer all the emails personally. Get lots. Man, that is awesome. Well, thank you for sharing this time with us. I mean, your your words were absolutely invaluable and your story. We're all about stories here and we cannot thank you enough for everything that you've shared and what you continue to do to have a positive impact on our society. So personally, from me, on behalf of all of our listeners, you know, thank you for all that you do and for sharing this time with us. No, no, nothing to be thankful about. I mean, I thank you for the opportunity to talk to your listeners. And I, I applaud you because you are the, one of those young people that I believe so much in that can make a difference. Here you took a horrible situation and you didn't cry about what could happen to your business or not. You will survive, have faith and trust, but you decided to, do something with your time to impact life. And young people like you will change the world for better. Trust me, I believe that with all my heart. 
Well, thank you. That means the world well, to thank me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. Well, that's going to wrap up our episode. And don't forget to get a copy of Dr. Valdez's book on his website. That is JorgeValdezPhD.com. You know, feel free to email him if you have any follow-up questions. He said he'll personally respond. So let's show him some love. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of BYOB Audio. We hope you found something valuable from the story shared today. Make sure you subscribe and share with someone who may need to hear something from this podcast. See you next time, but here's to you on your journey to a happier and more fulfilling life. Cheers.